you do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. Mr. President, up here! I voted for you! Wait a minute. That guy on the grassy knoll's got a gun. He's gonna shoot the president. Holy smokes, I've gotta do something. All right, Lee. Time to become an American hero. Darkmyths.org and the Opus Media Group proudly present to you the Lone Gunman Podcast, featuring your host, Rob Clark, where research comes to shine and myths come to die. Stay tuned. Be right there. came up and knocked on the door of the bus, although this is no bus stop here, knocked on the door of the bus and I opened the door and, and a man got on the bus and uh, paid his fare and I wouldn't be positive but I believe that he sat down on, uh, on the second seat on the right hand side of the bus there. And did we reach this point here, traffic had come to a standstill, in other words, uh, uh, we were sitting here and uh, traffic was stopped and there was a uh, a lady that was sitting behind me here, which was going to Union Station catch a train, a one o'clock train, and she asked me if I would uh, give her a transfer, and she decided she'd just walk on down to the station, which is seven or eight blocks from here. And uh, I gave her a transfer, and she got off. And at the same time, the gentleman that I picked up back up at uh, Murphy Street back here, in other words, uh, he got up and came up, and got him a transfer and got off at the same time in which that was the only two transfers that I, I put out uh, coming through town and which uh, later they uh, identified the police identified the transfer as the ones that uh, that they got on Oswald when he was arrested what's up everybody and welcome to the show this is episode number 137 of the Lone Gummin podcast and I am not your host <laughs> this week, Rob Clark. Uh, that's right. I got a special treat for everybody. I got a special guest host this week. Uh, a lot of people who listen to this show might be familiar with the man. Uh, Britain's most lovable <laughs> JFK researcher, Mr. Bart Camp, will be conducting this week's interview uh, for the Lone Gummin podcast. And he's going to be talking to a gentleman named Ed Ledoux. Uh, now, they're both members of the ROKC Forum, and part of the mantra of this show is where research comes to shine, and uh, that's what's going to be happening this week, because Ed has done some fantastic research into the bus trip and the cab ride that Oswald supposedly 
took after murdering President Kennedy and fleeing the Texas School Book Depository. But, as we're going to learn today, there's much, much more to the story that you might want to take into consideration, uh, you know, when you're trying to fit this narrative into what happened that day on November 22nd, 1963, and see what makes sense to you. Um, so... Look, without further ado, and I want to I want to thank Bart uh, for doing this interview. Um, you know, hopefully uh, some more of this will be coming. Uh, Dealey Plaza UK has an event coming up in April, uh, and I'm trying to think of the venue. The name is escaping me right now, and I'm a horrible, horrible <laughs> Canterbury. That's it, Canterbury. Uh, but for more information, visit the Dealey Plaza UK website. Um, if you're over there in England or in, in Europe at all and you'd like to go and be a part of this uh, special thing they got going on over there, they're going to have Larry Hancock in there. They're going to have this presentation via PowerPoint and Ed on the phone. Uh, Bart's going to be talking a lot about the second floor lunch encounter um, and many, many more. People are going to be over there, and they're going to be showing Randy Benson's film, The Searchers. And uh, Randy's got some exciting things coming up. He's going to have his film in a couple film festivals. I know the Tiburon Film Festival is one of them. Um, but for more information on that, head to Randy's website, uh, The Searchers. Uh, and stay abreast. It, it, you know, I'd encourage everybody to go back and listen to the to that episode. Um, and, and just really support what 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 Randy is doing, <clears throat> excuse me, and uh, what the guys over at the ROKC forum are doing. Um, you know, we can sit here and argue about the ballistics. Uh, we can argue about uh, where it was a shooter. Uh, you know, the grassy knoll. We can argue about this. We can argue about that, and never really get anywhere. If you want to follow. And I'm dead serious about this, people. And I'm not just talking about, you know, jumping in a forum and, uh, you know, just discussing willy-nilly whatever. Um, in my opinion, and this is purely my opinion, uh, some of the best research in the JFK case is, is happening at the Reopen Kennedy case forum. Okay? And, I mean, they got guys like Greg Parker, Bart Camp, Ed Ledoux. Uh, Hassan Youssef um, and these guys are, are are doing phenomenal work over there and many many more Colin Crow the whole the whole the whole nine yards so I invite everybody to please check out the ROKC forum check out the Dealey Plaza UK events coming up in Canterbury and uh, there's going to be a conference about the security state uh, thank you, Michael Swanson, for pointing it out. Um, and it's going to be held in Dulles, Virginia, <laughs> appropriate place, uh, sometime in June. Um, and it's going to be put on by the Future Freedom Foundation or what, whatever it is, the Triple F Foundation. Um, they're going to have speakers like Doug Horn there, um, David Talbot. Uh, I should have this list in front of me. But anyway... It's coming up at the Dulles, uh, right around the Dulles Airport, at one of the hotels there. And it's just a one-day thing. 
It's $59. Um, so if you live close to the D.C. area or you've got the means to hop on an airplane and fly to Dulles uh, for a day and, and enjoy the uh, D.C. area, I would highly encourage everyone to go and check it out. Um, they're going to be talking about all kinds of stuff relating to intelligence and uh, military intelligence and the security state and how it affected the JFK assassination. So very interesting stuff. Um, hopefully I'll be able to put links to all this stuff up somewhere. Uh, my website, as you may have noticed, or if you care, is now defunct because I didn't renew it. Uh, so there's that. But hopefully I might try to get this up on the 22 November network site and uh, over at Neapolis Media Group and get these links out to you to make it easy for you to find this stuff. Uh, but just keep it in mind. And so without further ado, let's get into Bart Camp. <laughs> and let me just say this real quick. This episode, Bart got a little taste of what it's like to be a podcast host uh, and, and, and having a... Uh, some difficulties uh trying to trying to trying to record some things i did the heavy lifting with the editing and uh so if there's any editing issues in here this is purely my fault um if i missed any uh colorful british curse words that's totally my fault um i had the best time in the world editing this audio uh i love bart man he cracks me up he cracks me up um so this audio is broken up into seven pieces. I'm going to try to make it sound as seamless as possible. Um, but anyway, the show itself sounds great. Bart and Ed sound really good. Uh, they're clear. You can definitely hear what's going on. Um, so without further ado, let's jump right into this, uh, this, this bus ride and the cab ride and see exactly if we can figure out what the hell was going on that day. All right, guys, take it away. Hello, my name is Bart Camp. I'm here with Ed Ledoux. Um, we're both members of the ROKC Forum, which stands for Reopen Kennedy Case. Uh, some of you may be familiar with some of my work on Prayer Man and on the second floor lunchroom encounter, Fugazi. And I thought it would be interesting to talk with Ed Ledoux about the bus transfer, better, uh, better yet, the Dallas City transfer about the alleged transfer of um, Lee Oswald going uh, from the Texas School Book Depository on uh, a bus and later on onto a cab to murder Tippett um, shortly after. Now, before I start with that um, and we get Ed involved, in, there are some uh, discrepancies uh, with Oswald leaving the Texas School Book Depository. Um, the official story is that after the second floor lunchroom encounter, Oswald makes his way uh, from the second floor uh, stairs at the front of the building, down those stairs, and pretty much leaves immediately. Um, they are talking about a three-minute window from the, since shooting Kennedy and Oswald's departure from the Texas School Book Depository. Uh, with this bit, there is already a problem because there have been newspaper reports where Oswald supposedly at 12.45 when he was supposedly running into um, his rooming house and was met by Arlene and Roberts um, and, therefore, and then brushed out by ch um, having a change of clothes and picking up his gun. 
and that's supposed to happen at 12.45. Yet, there have been reports that Oswald was sighted at 12.45 at the Texas Google Depository. What's um, very important, the, where those reports are coming from, <clears throat> excuse me, where those reports are coming from isn't really clear. One of them could be Roger Craig, who saw a person looking like Oswald coming down the grassy knoll and um, being picked up in the car in a Nash Rambler. That itself is a story with a huge tail, and um, I'm not going to go into that because I'm basically going to pass it on to Ed, who is basically going to start this talk with the bus transfer. Take it away, Ed. Great. Thanks. Thanks, Bart. Uh, I think I should start uh, basically by um, let's go over what the commission, the Warren Commission, found most credible. Uh, they found most credible that Lee Harvey Oswald left the building approximately three minutes after the assassination, that'd be at 1233. Uh, he probably, they say, walked east on Elm for seven blocks to the corner of Elm and Murphy, where he boarded a bus, which was heading back in the direction of the depository building on its way to Oak Cliff section of Dallas. Um, when Oswald was apprehended, supposedly a bus transfer marked for the Lakewood Marsalis route was found in his shirt pocket, that according to the commission. The transfer was dated Friday, November 22nd, 1963, and was punched in two places by the bus driver. On the basis of this punch mark, which was distinctive to each bus driver, the transfer was conclusively identified as having been issued by Cecil J. McWaters, a bus driver for the Dallas Transit Company. On the basis of the date and time of the transfer, McWaters was able to testify that the transfer had been issued by him on on a trip which passed a checkpoint at St. Paul and Elm at 12.36 p.m., November 22, 1963, of course. McWaters was sure that he left the checkpoint on time. He estimated that it took him three to four minutes to drive three blocks west from the checkpoint to Field Street, which he reached about 12.40 p.m. McWaters' recollection is that he issued this transfer to a man who entered his bus just beyond Field Street, where a man beat on the front door of the bus, boarded it, and paid his fare. About two blocks later, a woman asked to get off to make a one o'clock train at Union Station and requested a transfer, which she might use if she got through the traffic. Cecil says, so I gave her a transfer and opened the door, and she was going out. The gentleman I had picked up two blocks back, asked for a transfer, and got off at the same place, in the middle of the block where the lady did. It was the intersection near Lamar Street. It was near Poitras and Lamar Street. The man was on the bus approximately four minutes. At about 6 p.m. on the day of the assassination, McWaters viewed four men in a police lineup. He picked Oswald from the lineup as the man who had boarded the bus at the lower end of town, around Elm and Houston, and who, during the ride south on Marsalis, had an argument with a woman passenger. In his commission testimony, McWaters said he had been in error and that the teenager named Milton Jones was the passenger he had in mind. In a later interview, Jones confirmed that he had exchanged words with a woman, a passenger on the bus during the ride south on Marsalis. McWaters also remembered that a man received a transfer at Lamar and Elm Streets, and that a man in the lineup was about the size of this man. 
However, McWhorter's recollection alone was too vague to be a basis for placing Oswald on the bus. Enter Mrs. Bledsoe, 7 p.m. Saturday, to give a very short affidavit. Mr. Ball, <clears throat> how far was he on the bus till he got off? Mrs. Bledsoe responds, about three or four blocks. Did he say anything to the motorman when he got off? They say he did, but I don't remember him saying anything. Did you ever see the motorman give him a transfer? No, I didn't pay attention, but I believe he did. Well, what do you mean? He, you believe he did? Did you remember seeing him get on? Are you telling me something you read in the newspapers? No, I, I don't remember. I, I don't remember. Did you pay any attention at the time as to whether he did or did not get a transfer? I didn't pay any attention to him. Well, did you look at him as he got off the bus? No, I sure didn't. I, I didn't want to know him. Well, you think you got enough of a glimpse of him to be able to recognize him? Oh, yes. You think you might have been mistaken? Oh, no. You didn't look very carefully, did you? No. I just glanced at him and then looked the other way. And hope he didn't see me. Now, are there two exits from the bus? Uh, uh-huh. The middle of the bus and the, the front of the bus. Uh-huh. Which exit did he leave? Uh, front. By the motorman. Uh-huh, by the motorman. Did anybody else get off that time when he got off? No, not then. But there was a lady sitting right across. Uh, she wanted to go to the train station. To the train station? Train station. And she was worried about trying to get off and, you know, getting, trying to get there. And and we were hearing her and I said, well, why don't you walk over there? It's just a little ways because the crowd was so bad. That we still didn't know the president had been killed. And finally she got off. And I think it was, it was before, I mean, after Oswald did. Did she ask for a transfer? Uh, yes, uh, she had the man give her one because uh, she caught the bus before she got to the train station. How do you know that? Well, I saw her. You saw her catch another bus? She got on when we did. Uh, she read a block. Did anybody get off when the lady got off? Anybody that was going to the train station? No. There's nothing in Bledsoe's interviews, affidavits, or statements about a transfer. Only in her Warren Commission testimony, one note is that Porter Bledsoe, Mary's son, sold the calendar page from the calendar that had a notation October 7th from Oswald and October 14th to Oswald. Porter sold it on November 26th for $4, saying it was Oswald's writing. Needless to say, when the person who bought it um, took it to the FBI, the FBI only took a photograph of it and gave it back to the man, Mike Nybauer, the unemployed man. And so this is about the Dallas Trans Transit Company. Uh, so here is a book, just like Cecil's book of transfers. And did you buy this on the eBay? Yes, I did. I actually found these on eBay. Uh, I think there's still a few available uh, of these booklets, and they are, as you can see, they're they're from uh, 
you know, 1959, which is good because they're not, you know, after the fact. Nice. These are before the fact. Yes. Right. So these are more important than some that would be after the fact. And I think it would be incredibly valuable if anyone could find a used transfer like Oswald's. That would be amazing. And I'll get into that why it would be amazing to have a used transfer. But uh, <clears throat> so um, in my PowerPoint, um, you can see that uh, uh, there were some photographs by Stuart Leslie Reed. Yes. And Reed took a, a photo of the Texas, Texas School Book Depository and then um, these two pictures of, uh, of a couple of buses on Elm Street stuck in traffic, uh, whether they were the focus of his attention or not. That's up to debate. Um, and these were shortly after the assassination. And if you follow, uh, you know, we got the pictures and we, we went through them. You can kind of follow the sequence of him taking the pictures of the motorcade going by and then him walking a block up to take these two photographs of these buses. Yes. And uh, and so <clears throat> and McWhorter testified. Sorry, sorry, sorry I'll just to interrupt uh, for the listeners. Stuart Reed is uh, important because uh, he just didn't take pictures of the uh, Texas School Book Depository and the procession, but also he's the one that was made by, um, is made the Texas Theater exit of Lee Harvey Oswald famous. He took the pictures of while Oswald was being dragged out of the Texas Theater and basically right. being shoved in a car as such. Right. Sorry. Right. So McWatters testified that the Beckley bus, which is seen in those photos, most likely, uh, was usually directly behind him as they came to the same intersection and passed St. Paul at the same time on Elm at 12.36. That's the checkpoint. Um, what was Reed doing capturing the buses on Elm? Of note is the arrest of Lee Harvey Oswald, captured by Reed uh, at the Texas Theater. Reed said he had just happened to be going to Oak Cliff and followed cop sirens to the Texas Theater. And that was his, that was his out on that, I guess. Um, Reed never stuck around to see what his film held, supposedly, uh, left for Panama Canal Zone, where he worked for the U.S. Army civilian sector. Uh, so Reed was basically lucky three times. Um, got the buses, <laughs> he got the building, he got the arrest, he got the, actually four times he got the motorcade. I mean, that was a lucky, lucky guy to have all those things captured on film. Yes. Uh, and so, and he was also working for military intelligence that day on assignment for military intelligence. So, and that's been admitted to, especially by his boss. Then uh, in the Texas theater, cops arrest and frisk the suspect, um, the cop killer, right? They, they frisk him. Uh, they shake him down, supposedly, so that, quote, not even a razor blade could hide on him. Yet hours later at 4.05 p.m., before the first lineup, Lee supposedly has five bullets, five live bullets in his pocket. And a bus pass still on him. I don't have pockets on the shirt, but... Um, which doesn't matter because they, <laughs> the officers couldn't tell you which pocket they got it out of anyway. So uh, it was just kind of funny. Um, so the transfer was from a booklet of 50 transfers just like this and was number 004459, which is eight deep into the book. You know, uh, The booklet starts its numbers at 004451, and they run through to 004451. 500. Um, so the first transfer of the booklet 004451 was supposedly taken off by Cecil, the driver, marked on its back, putting his badge or driver's number on it. 
and then handing it in to the company, uh, to the supervisor of the ship, supervisor or whatever, before starting his route. And he could take, you know, as many booklets as he wanted and just sign the first one over, hand it in, and off he goes to do his route. And <clears throat> so Cecil's been doing this for a while. Um, uh, at that time, I, th I think it was like 13 years or something, and quite a while. So he was pretty accustomed to knowing how many transfers he usually gives out, how many booklets he would need. Let's say the, the bus, let's say the bus broke down completely full. One booklet would usually do that for that bus. He'd be screwed anywhere else on the, on the run, though. But uh, usually one booklet will cover him no matter what happens. So, <clears throat> so basically he says, um, he put his badge number on the back of number one, handed in and, and took off with one book of transfers for one route that he was, he was doing, right? Uh, he was going to do the, um, <clears throat> the Lakewood route. And then he turns around at the end and he goes back up. And that's actually, you know, according to the booklet, that's the Marsalis route, you know, the way they punch him. Um, it's actually the reverse on what the sign says on the bus and all that. And we can get into that too. But um, <clears throat> So he put his number on the back, number 195 for his testimony. And what's odd about that is that the system they had of just writing the number on the back uh, was that each driver had a punch, right? And so they punched these with a distinctive punch for each driver. In the supervisor's office, there's a master punch list. So if any discrepancy comes up, it, they can come in, like, say, a writer and can come in with that transfer, ban their money back or whatever, and they can see by the punch on that which driver handed that out. Um, so it just seems kind of odd that, you know, they would know all the, these different punches are for this driver and not this driver, but yet anybody can write, write 195 on the back. It's just kind of weird. So um, this uh, Dallas transfer transit is kind of a problem. So um, <clears throat> we would know, we would know better who actually took, the, took it out. If it was, if the receipt was actually punched, then we do. If somebody had wrote on it, like I say, anybody can write on it. Not anybody would have that, the, their identification, their punch. Yeah. So that, that's just a little, a little thing, you know, a little yeah. aside there. Um, so, um, so, Besides that, um, besides that, um, 004459 was eight transfers into this booklet that Cecil took out. And a booklet, the bus driver swore he'd only issued two transfers, uh, you know, coming through downtown. And uh, Cecil McWatters, the driver, said he was stopped Friday night, 1122, in front of the police station as Cecil, Cecil drove another bus route that night. He had gone home after... Uh, this Oswald thing, you know, you didn't know he had Oswald the bus, but <laughs> he, uh, he went home and he was watching TV and everything, absorbing everything that had happened and all the news reports. And then he goes out on this, this uh, Piedmont line run. And so, uh, he, that's what he's driving. He's actually driving a, a completely different bus, completely different run, different line, um, uh, different book of tickets too, because As you can see on these, this book of tickets, nowhere on there is the Piedmont line. So he, he had to go back, get a different bus from the bus garage and new tickets and everything. He didn't just, unless he took them with him, you know, maybe at the start of the day. That would be the only other thing. But these tickets don't work on the Piedmont line. So, I mean, he took two books of tickets, he said that day when he, when he checked out right. to go to Marla, Marsalis, um, Lakewood Road. So he had to go back 
and and I'll get into this too. You know, what happens when, when you turn in the ticket? Let's think about that for a second while I read this. So, <clears throat> so the DPD take him in for questioning and his punch when they take him off his Piedmont line bus, which happens to pull up in front of the, the police station. I mean, how convenient is that? Yes. It's like, it, it's almost like it's the first guy they, they found. Uh, what? You, you heard, you heard somebody was on the bus. It could have been Oswald. Let me, let me go grab him. Hang on. Go grab somebody off the, you know, bus driver. So, uh, and they probably know the guy pulls up in front of the bus, in front of the uh, police station too, every day. I mean, the, the cops aren't stupid. They know the, the buses pull up there. They might even ride them. You know. But, uh, <clears throat> some of them might have drove them in, you know, you know. <laughs> some of them were cab drivers, but we'll get into that later. You know, uh, who goes from cab driver to cop? Dallas police takes those people. So anyways, um, okay. So if the booklet was taken, then how do we know anything Just you know, if, if no booklet was taken by the authorities, none's in evidence, none's ever shown to, uh, to see some McWatters during his com- commission testimony. Nothing like that happens. We don't know anything about what happened to this booklet tickets. Um, Gone, disappeared, whatever. Did he turn it in? By Ball, Berlin, or any of the commissioners? No, none of the lawyers are asking any questions about this stuff. Um, it just forget about it. Uh, forget about it. So, uh, <clears throat> well, to put it as quickly as I can, McWatters thought the man that they wanted him to ID was the laughing boy, uh, a one Roy Milton Jones, uh, this teenager that Cecil said. Uh, well, Lee Harvey Oswald was the closest looking to this kid, you know. He, he didn't know who the hell Milton was. He just thought, uh, yeah, he thought Oswald was the Milton, you know. That's what he thought. He thought the, the you know, he's helping the police out probably, you know, by, uh, IDing this guy that, uh, he thought got in an argument with some lady over, uh, you know, the shooting and the, the temple shot. We'll get into that too. So, this, um, Cecil said that kid was, uh, closest to Oswald, so he picked out number two. And, uh, so yeah, I need Oswald as a pastor whom got on his bus in the middle of an intersection while stuck in traffic. <clears throat> Yet Cecil's first day affidavit says a man got on near Houston Street around Houston and Elm. That's, that's kind of weird. And Milton, Milton, he got on before St. Paul. Milton got on at the theater. The theater is where Cecil would pull over and you know, kill him in it. So, so like I say, uh, Cecil's first day affidavit says a uh, man got on near Houston Street, around Houston and Elm, and like I say, Milton, he got on before St. Paul, uh, is where all the, the bus drivers would be at the, the theater there. That's where Milton got on, uh, way before this. And if Cecil was early, that is where he would kill a minute. And, uh, so it, it's interesting that, uh, Cecil could be, um, quite early that day. Cecil could be up to, who knows, maybe five minutes early because on, on that day, um, uh, everybody was basically at, um, the motorcade to watch the motorcade. They're already into town. Uh, Cecil himself said it was a very light day. Nobody at the stops. So, uh, you wouldn't blow over the stop. You would just blow right on by. So he could have got to the, the theater and killed several minutes. Um, could have been there for a while. And that's what all the, uh, the bus drivers would, would do is wait there at the, at the, uh, Majestic Theater, um, before going across this checkpoint. Uh, if you were early, you got docked. If you were late, you got docked. So you wanted to be exactly on time when you went across there. So he would wait right till 1236, get in his bus and head for that checkpoint. And, uh, so, um, Milton himself even says that he was on the bus alone when he got on. 
which mean, means to me, not even the drivers on it. It was, it was their park door open as they do and just left open. So you would, you would basically hop on, uh, throw your 23 cents into the receptacle. The bus driver would get on, see you on there, see the 23 cents in this receptacle, hit a little lever, drop it into the, the, uh, the, um, little coin holder down the bottom and take off. Uh, if you got on, there wasn't 23 cents in the receptacle. Uh, you, you better get up and pay your fare because he's probably going to kick your ass off the bus. So that's how that little system worked. And that's probably what happened that day. Yeah. <clears throat> and and uh, so here we have uh, the re- these read photos so that you see the Beckley bus probably behind the Marsalis bus of McWaters. And I think that's what we see in the photos is that the bus in front <clears> – <throat> um, sometimes people label the, the back one bus 1213. Uh, no, that, that's not what Cecil says. That doesn't make sense. Um, and on that day, especially from what Cecil says, he was like one of the first bus through. Uh, they opened a lane for him on the right-hand side. Uh, uh, when you look in the photos, it looks like his bus is actually getting ready to take that turn onto Houston, uh, sort of kitty corner across from uh, the uh, Texas School Book Depository. Right. Now, the Beckley bus directly behind him, which you can see in those photos, if the, the, those are correctly the two, two buses, um, would tend to imply, and even from what Cecil said, the, the Beckley bus is directly behind him, um, even if, if those aren't the buses that we're talking about. That bus, that Beckley bus that's behind him, would pull over on the right-hand side right there in front of the Daltex building uh, to pick up passengers. That is a bus stop. And then it would continue on down Elm and go into Oak Cliff that way. Um, Cecil Cecil's bus runs down Houston and goes by the train station. And, and that's why uh, this lady was supposedly on there um, to go, you know, catch this train. Um, who supposedly got off and got a transfer. One of the two that he, Cecil says he gave out through downtown. And who would know best but Cecil McWaters. Yeah. <clears throat> but that's not what the official story wants you to believe. Uh, um, so they say that uh, now they got McWaters bus, which does not take you to the rooming house. Okay. Remember the rooming house is on Beckley. Not on Marsalis, unless he was still living at this lady who says, hey, I saw him arguing and he had a torn sleeve and uh, jacket on. Well, uh, maybe X-ray vision and all that. Um, I think the story is getting bigger and bigger over the the days because I've read some of the newspaper reports. And at first, she only like says like one or two things. And over the days... Uh, progressing, uh, her story gets bigger and bigger, and it just gets added on and on and on, and it's just um, it becomes more uh, actually unbelievable uh, as such. And like I said in the beginning well, as well, like, she gets questioned. She gets questioned more and more. Right. We have to wonder if, if all the questioning and all the uh, shirt showing. Remember, they bring the this the shirt up. They do all this kind of weird stuff to uh, Mrs. Bledsoe, and then uh, basically she's incorporating all this. She's putting in things that. She, she could not possibly have seen on that bus, like the, you know, it being roped off, the area being roped off and all that. That didn't happen until much later after yeah. after she had supposedly ridden by this. Yeah. That was so we, we know she incorporated. Yep. She incorporated everything that she saw, heard in, in this story. So, mm. <clears throat> um, and so basically um, uh, we have McWaters bus. Doesn't take you to the to the rooming house on Beckley, or even close to the theater, even. So, um, and we know Oswald was in the theater; he was pulled out of there. So, we, we know where he was. Um, they they can't can't try and fool us on that. <laughs> we know where he was. 
Um, so the logical conclusion is that Lee was never on uh, bus 1213, the Marsalis bus. You know, why would he be? Um, so why is this story told then? And it's because of the no conspirators, basically instruction, uh, very early on from FBI, from J. Edgar Hoover. This was, this was the deal, man. There can't be, there can't be any other involvement. If you got somebody, that's your guy. That's it. That's far as it goes. And, and that's what it was. They, uh, <clears throat> somebody set up Lee and they went with it. They had to. So, um, you know, that's public transportation for you. Yeah. <laughs> no, no conspirators there. <laughs> no, none whatsoever. Now, the bus oh, itself yeah. is stuck in traffic. Absolutely. That's another Absolutely. story. So basically, because, and also Oswald basically goes in the wrong gets direction, then it's stuck in traffic, um, gets out. It's the wrong bus. The, real, the actual bus that he would need to get on is right, right behind that yeah. bus, so it yeah, yeah, none, none of it makes any sense, or uh, it, it doesn't pan out, anyways, because Mick Waters says, "Hey, that's that's not even the guy." <laughs> so, yeah. so they're stuck. Yeah. So where do they go? A cab. Yeah. Answer, Mr. Wally. So here, and so, so you had the the police at first looking for a Negro in a station wagon, uh, whom drove Lee away, and then Lee using public transportation to escape, which is ridiculous on his face. So Lee likely left. Um, you know, maybe to go, uh, you know, go meet with Ruth and Marina. Because remember, remember the deal was that was the plan was to buy shoes for Marina. He gave her money that morning, all this kind of stuff. You know, it, it gets it gets founded and he gave her hundreds of dollars. And everything. He gave her money for shoes. That was the plan. They were going to go buy shoes. <laughs> and where's he found? Loitering in front of a shoe store in Oak Cliff, huh? supposedly. Yeah, it just it just sounds ridiculous on its on its face, even of that. But uh, so. <clears throat> And so he was off early, you know, thanks to his name being first on this roll call list yeah. at the top. First guy, yeah. uh, supposedly, you know, even uh, um, <clears throat> whatever Robert McNeil or you know sees him asking for the phone on his way in, um, and then that isn't. I don't even know if that's three minutes, you know, um, you know, because McNeil, you know, he had ran down, talked to the Newmans, he had got, he had to get a story, right? It wasn't like he just ran down, saw some people on the ground, and ran back, said, "Hey, people are on the ground." Listen to the story that McNeil gave, and then you you know you got how long it took him to develop this little lead to go run into the building and and use a phone. He was in longer than three minutes. Yeah, and the thing is, yeah, that's this is the problem. McNeil never actually said like by himself, like, oh yeah, it was Oswald that basically uh, told me where the phone was. Basically, Secret Service told him that weeks after, three weeks later, basically, which um, is probably after. uh, after early December, when all the stories started to be concocted by the Secret Service as such. And um, then Robert McNeil basically went like, yeah, they visited me about three weeks later and basically said like that I probably met um, uh, Oswald on the steps. And that's the same thing with Piers Allman, the same thing as well. Um, his story, yes. uh, from a timing perspective, same. again, that's problematic all. because Allman basically is in sho- uh, is shocked and is walking around dazed around the grassy knoll, um, talks with the Newmans and um, uh, wanders about and then slowly makes his way yeah. towards the front entrance as such. And again, there is no timing. I mean, they're guessing, they're reaching, but there's no real timing, timestamp for, right. for that as such. And that's again, it's yeah, problematic. Re- <laughs> right. So they uh, so they have them on the top of this roll call list. Yeah, that's very weird, you know, that's, because that's the, for them to get, them to get to the roll call point, 
you know, um, even if you ask Wes, I mean, that's 15, 20 minutes into the, uh, you know, this assassination thing. Yeah. I mean, it's a ways in before they even start, you know, yeah. uh, Christian, who are you? I'm getting a piece of paper and what I've you know, read so a Sawyer on team yeah, getting it organized. What I've read so far is that the, um, some of the employees basically said that um, they went around and not everybody, like when everybody says like, oh, there was a roll call, um, there was no roll call as such. Basically, they just wandered around and basically went to groups of people and took their names down as such. But what's significant right. about the roll call list is that, A, um, Oswald, of course, uh, it's a two-pager and Oswald is on the top yeah. of that list. So therefore indicating that probably Oswald was the first one who left the building. Um, secondly, um, other employees have also said that, uh, yeah, we were allowed to leave, but we had to leave our name and details at the front door. And this is where it comes in that the police starts taking names down. And then the other bit that is significant is the fact that <clears throat> this roll call list is not just Texas School Book Depository employees. Peggy Joyce Hawkins, for instance, is on it. Peggy Joyce Hawkins right. picked okay. her husband up. And stood outside and saw Marion Baker standing still in front of the Texas School Book Depository entrance as such. She went back into the depository and basically couldn't get out and therefore had to give her name. Because her husband worked in there, she just happened to be in there after the shooting and basically got stuck in the building as such. So it's a glaring example of they're not just Texas School Book Depository employees. That's people that are inside the building and when they leave, they have to leave their names and details. Um, of course, also another Terry Ford. Yeah. And what's also important is that certain names are missing and they're handwritten underneath. Now, there's a bit of a problem right. with the list itself because it's typed up. Of course, the actual list would have been written down, but that list of absolutely nowhere to be seen. So, but uh, other nowhere than that, to be seen. Yeah. All right. So, so, um, so here we are with the, <clears throat> the DVD and, uh, they're uh, taking the roll call list and, uh, Everybody would have to show some form, something, you know, you know, if you can give your details, but, you know, how, how do they know who you are? You know, how do they know you're giving the correct details? I think they would have to, you'd have to show something, you know, and, and most of these people drove uh, a few of them. A few of the employees did, you know, take buses and stuff. So, you know, the only the only matching address that, you know, and, or anything that had an, uh, an address as far as an ID or any kind of card in Oswald's wallet was the library card, which had, you know, 60 smudgy. Two looks like a five, and of course that's what we see written down on on that uh, on that list is a a messed up number for the the two and the five is. I mean it's it's a no brainer to put that together that that's what was shown. <clears throat> the way the the name is written, I have no idea. You know, it, it could have been one guy reading it off, one guy writing it down. <clears throat> Happens all the time. Let me see that. What's that? What's your name? I'm you know he's giving the name. Who knows what? But uh, that number that nails it. That's six zero two six zero five. That nails it. OK, so and then uh, so he had, and this is a place where he hadn't lived for months too, uh the Elsbeth address. And so. Which is the Irving address of the Paines or whatever, something like that, or his new supposedly new rooming house address or something. No, it, <clears throat> that's the only piece of ID he had. And um, in Texas, it wasn't until the Mothers Against Drunk Driving. That uh, that pictures were put on IDs, and and that didn't happen in Texas until 1982. So that's how stupid something you would look like with, uh, hey, I'm Aid Heidel, 
you you got a, a Lee Harvey Oswald uh, stretch band and uh, and a Heidel, uh, yeah, with a picture on it. The horrible, horrible. They're trying to fool you completely with all this stuff. Yeah, <clears throat> it would never happen in a million years. It, uh, somebody as, as ignorant as, as possible, never been in the country, wouldn't even try this. So yeah, this is what they're trying to pass on you. You know, uh, his name or his picture on this selective service card. Ridiculous. Um, so basically, um, Lee took a bus to the theater, let's say, you know, all right, he takes a bus to the theater. Uh, what possible use would a transfer be to him? So the, what, what the Warren Commission is trying to do here is trying to tie him to the tip of her. So, and, and they're using it in, in a strange way, this, this transfer. So they needed to timestamp his escape uh, via the public transportation, remember. Can't have any conspirators. So this this solves all their problems. Kind of in, in a one-stop shop, that little slip of paper, thin as a piece of, thinner than a piece of newspaper. I mean, this stuff is so flimsy and thin. Um, this winds up supposedly in his pocket at 4.05 p.m. during, you know, after they've searched him. Probably twice. <laughs> and, and what's and what's weird about this too uh, uh, is uh, the searching of of, uh, of people. Um, you know, my sister's been uh, a, a jailer, uh, and uh, they search people when they come back. <laughs> you know why? So they don't take anything into the jail. Yeah. I don't care what the hell you're going out and the three guys are going to stand there in front of the little witness. Thing. They want to know that you don't, you're not bringing anything back. You're not bringing a razor blade back into the prison. They don't want that or drugs or whatever the hell you're going to bring in. They don't want anything brought back in. That's when they're going to search you. Not before they take you out and handcuff you. Who are cops? Yeah. That's the problem. Two cops and the jailer, they, they handcuff them to about four or five. So this is complete garbage that they would, oh, we need to search you. Absolutely, completely an utter lie by Boyd and Sims on this point alone. So. And it's provable. So, um, so basically, this is what they need to do: timestamp his escape, and and get him on public transportation alone. Um, so, McWater's bus also interestingly shows up at another location of interest. Uh, the bus stops at at East Jefferson, right near, or actually right on the corner of the Jefferson branch of the public library. And at that scene, McWater's and passengers would witness the DPD uh, and some other people. Uh, basically descending on that library, chasing a young man who was sent racing in by them. <laughs> Perhaps a diversion to allow Tibbet's killer to slip away um, or to do whatever. You know, basically leaving a gun in the jacket, five bullets, maybe a Cox box, box top, an American bakery's receipt. Who knows what, you know, what was in that jacket or what was left behind. But uh, that would be uh, used on Oswald, basically uh, planted in evidence by the DVD uh, and so basically they're complicit in railroading him by using this evidence. And we know DPD's done this before. Um, basically 19 innocent individuals under Henry Wade uh, <clears throat> during his time as, you know, district attorney uh, and with the DPD's help, would use all manners of tricks to convict the innocent, including evidence tampering, witness coercion, subjoining false testimony, bribery. Uh, hiding exculpatory evidence, manufacturing evidence, and the proverbial packing the jury, uh, to which only DNA proved these 19 innocent. So that's DNA the DA's office kept, uh, but never shared or told anybody they had or, you know, with all their tricks and stuff. 
So uh, it wasn't until later it was discovered, tested, and showed that these were all wrongful convictions, um, at least these 19. And, it, it, well, geez, uh, at least one of them, uh, I guess the 20th, I guess would be, he's dead, so they killed him. Um, <clears throat> so we know Wade was not truthful when it came to Oswald's guilt. Um, even once Ruby had sealed the deal um, and killed Oswald, murdered him, Wade uh, still felt um, it necessary to get the, the facts out, right? Have this press conference. And uh, that's where he famously gave the name of Daryl Click uh, as the cab driver who drove Lee away. Mm. So, <clears throat> and what's interesting about that is, you know, the, the the explanation they gave, you know, which was, oh, I, no, I said Oak Cliff, um, <clears throat> which is, which is okay. You know, it does sound like Oak Cliff when you replay the tapes and everything. It does sound like, you know, way to say maybe Oak Cliff, but, uh, but the clicks do play into the matter uh, via Marion Meharg and uh, David Leon Miller. And so that whole story and, uh, you know, about them capturing a license plate and saying it was this car and all this stuff. And then all the uh, the David Miller calls to the Beckley uh, rooming house. And oh, my gosh. And it's just it's just very interesting to uh, uh, follow that kind of stuff, too. But uh so the, the clicks do play into it. And then, um, so the interesting about that, about that is how does a man who doesn't exist, he said there was no Daryl Click, there was no Click, right? How does he have a, a nickname, a Bo Click? And isn't it interesting that Bo Click sounds exactly like Oak Cliff? Yeah. So Bo Cliff and Oak Cliff and yeah, Bo Click. Very, very, very similar. Uh, and, and you could get those confused. You could say, oh, Cliff and Meenan both. So we don't know what the hell Wade was up to there with his, uh, with his cab driver story. That was very interesting. And then, so basically you got the evidence. Uh, the evidence boils down to, uh, this, the, the bus transfer receipt, uh, uh, 004451. They, they bring in this, this, the first one is, you know, some member signed by the driver, turned in. Uh, <clears throat> But that's never shown to McWaters to verify that the receipt even is the one that he placed his number on. Why not show him the receipt? Uh, it, it's weird because then, uh, I think, you know, uh, Lee Farley uh, basically went into this thing where <clears throat> he showed that the, you know, the, the, the booklet, the receipt had been taken, you know, taken as a souvenir and uh, written on. And very interesting story there. But uh, so the booklet the transfers came from was also never in evidence. Nobody knows what happened to it. They never asked any questions or collected any evidence of you know these transfers or a booklet like it or anything like that. They don't want you to know. So so here we have <clears throat> DPD Detective Sims uh, finds the supposed transfer. Doesn't recall which pocket. Can't tell you which pocket he took out of from the shirt at 4 or 5 p.m. Sims doesn't so recall re a lot overall anyway. All right. And, and recall that at 6 p.m., Waters is at the police station, pulled up out front on the Piedmont line, and he's got different transfers. He's, but he's got the same punch. Um, <clears throat> so <laughs> kind of makes you wonder. So Sims places uh, the transfer in an envelope. Uh, signs it, places the time on it, 4 or 5 p.m., and then says they, Detective Boyd and him, uh, place the five bullets also in the same envelope. You know, they both sign it. 
So here we have this thin, flimsy piece of paper floating around in an envelope with five shells and supposedly being tossed into a, uh, an evidence drawer uh, from the sergeant. Uh, never shown to anybody. Boyd and Sims don't, they don't know what happened to it after that. And they supposedly put it in this envelope, put it in the uh, at an evidence drawer in the sergeant's desk. No further chain of custody. We don't know where it went. Yeah, the fun, that's funny, actually, that you mentioned that, because everything else is being shown and paraded around, like the rifle, or when mm -hmm. uh, Jerry Hill uh, gets the bullets out of the so-called revolver, which also... Oh, shows, shows them in his hand. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, they all get paraded and shown, yeah. <laughs> Everything's shown. So uh, <laughs> so we have these five bullets rolling around in an envelope. After a huge brawl with uh, five date cops ripping at the shirt, turning at it, ripping the buttons off, hold, ripping holes in the elbows, etc. And uh, you get this. Yeah, in papers. pristine condition. What's indestructible? Yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, so the, the DVD take uh, these items, uh, you know, all these items supposedly, and they also take the bracelet, right? And uh, they said, that's supposedly said boldly Lee on it. <clears throat> and yet here he's just carrying this ID with an AGA High Hill name on it. Which is just, it's just silly and stupid, you know, with that, that kind of combination there. <laughs> that uh, <laughs> that they, they would go that far, but, but they did. Um, and then, uh, so uh, basically remember that this was a, a frisk in the theater where they turned your pockets inside out to make sure that nothing's left on the suspect. Now, this is a guy who supposedly killed a cop. Um, <clears throat> and the president, they don't know that, though, of course, right? Yeah. And uh, so yet, our, yet after all this frisking and fighting and everything, um, there's barely, uh, I, you know, a couple folds, some creases basically on, on this uh, flimsy, less thinner than newspaper. I mean, these things are so thin. I mean, they're so delicate. Uh, just just to handle them, I mean, they rip and tear. And uh, I'm very careful with this book. But <clears throat> so you have this, this indestructible... Um, transfer shows up with barely a, a fold of a crease on it. And they, they supposedly put this uh, into uh, Lieutenant Wells's, uh, you know, desk or something, Evans drawer, uh, and which it's not signed out for um, supposedly later on, you know, at, at 6 p.m. or whatever, uh, supposedly somebody's showing this to McWaters. Uh, not Boyd and Sims, though. <laughs> so, uh, and uh, so there's no trail of, you know, it's this item, basically, it, it just ends right there. It's marked the envelope 405, and that's it. Um, and then... <clears throat> but this is pretty much telling... Sorry to interrupt, but this is pretty much telling with how the DPD handled evidence overall, because in most cases, the chain of custody was broken. Uh, it was broken with the bullets, it was broken with the shells, uh, the markings on the tippet bullets, uh, you name it. Wherever you talk about the actual evidence, the chain of evidence has been messed with one way or another. And again, as you can see, this bus ticket as well. And as you show here in this in this Skype, or how thin that piece of paper is. I mean, you, you know, it would it would at least show dents or uh, creases of some sort. I mean, especially after a scuffle and you know, and the transportation, and if it goes in, an, in the same envelope with five bullets in it as well, that, that would make, uh, that would have an effect of some sort. It would make oh. dents in it, and yet it comes out yeah. in like, like it's been ironed by the DPD before it actually comes out as such. Some really odd looking. Uh, <clears throat> and so, uh, <clears throat> so basically, uh, 
this remained in his pockets for over two hours too, yeah. you know, while they're running him around and, and taking him to different places and questioning him and stuff. <clears throat> and so there's no chain of custody for that, that transfer. That's supposed they present to McWaters. Um, <clears throat> and, you know, it's always McWaters saying, oh, well, they showed me a transfer. It must, it must be mine. You Basically, I think it's, you know, this is basically a manufactured piece of evidence um, to support the no conspirators order, basically, that they got. Um, so, and, and researcher uh, Lee Farley basically noted that the receipt that 00451 was stolen by um, the Dallas Transit Station supervisor, James P. Route, uh, as a souvenir, right? And uh, <clears throat> the foreman there, uh, Route, was never interviewed about taking the transfer. Uh, booklet receipt. Uh, his supervisor at the, at the station uh, basically re- relayed Route's story of, of taking a souvenir and stuff, and that was FF Yates. So that's the only person that they basically interviewed about it was was Yates. Does not say as a supervisor how he acquired it back, or you know what caused Route to give it back to him. Um, and, and you got to imagine, you know, if if Cecil did turn in a book of of receipts from the killer's bus. Who knows where they all are? Yeah. Who knows where that booklet? And that might be the whole story right there. That you know. <laughs> hey, let's put some number on it, and hey, we could sell these for a million dollars. So it, it just it really kills their story. They don't want that brought up. They don't bring that that receipt page. They don't bring any of those those photocopies of you know. Hey, I took and it's actually signed. You know, hey, I took this as a souvenir. The Aubrey Oswald, and Cecil's bus, all that kind of stuff. Written right on it. It's really crazy. You can see it on the, the PowerPoint page there. But, um, you know, and as Terry Martin says, Oswald Pockets uh, basically held the same cornucopia status as the Payne's Garage and those uh, sea bags. Yeah. Just, what do you need? You've got it here. You know? <laughs> Come over tomorrow. We'll it's, a, it's amazing what has grown uh, in that period after the assassination inside Ruth Payne's garage. It's amazing. So, yeah. Um, so basically, the cab and the bus story uh, basically owes itself to uh, to Hugh Ainsworth, uh, he's a reporter, you know, Dallas Morning News. <clears throat> uh, basically, uh, Hugh reported uh, the elderly woman whom had an altercation with Oswald on the bus was acquainted with Oswald. Um, so therefore, if the altercation was on Marsalis, it was not with Oswald. As they said, Oswald had already departed the bus downtown with a transfer in hand. Can't be the same guy. So their story doesn't hold up. <clears throat> so, and, uh, of course, Hugh will get into maybe a little bit about uh, how Hugh uh, got his cab story. And uh, <clears throat> that's, that's a winner there. Um, yet we know, thanks to Cecil, the altercation was between a woman and Milton Jones, the laughing boy, a teenager, on the Marsalis bus. Uh, the laughing boy, Milton Jones, who stayed on the bus and rode... All the way to his stop in Oak Cliff, uh, near his home on Brownlee. Uh, the transfer is never processed. It's sent to the FBI lab, and the only thing they do with it is take pictures. No fingerprints are lifted, no residues collected, nada. Hmm, interesting. While items supposedly in Lee's wallet are stained from chemical fingerprinting. Hmm, okay. So <clears throat> there could be prints from Mick Waters, Oswald, Sims, and possibly Detective 
whom showed it to me, uh, to McWatters, the bus driver, which is not Boyd or Sims. We know that some other detective <clears throat> who they name later. Uh, these prints should be on the transfer, but uh, they did not transfer. They did not process this piece of paper. Um, so basically, it's pristine too. In, in that respect, there's you know, no you know, no chemical fingerprint staining or anything to uh, sub, you know, substantiate that this was actually Oswald's transfer. <clears throat> Just a flimsy story from McWatters who tells you that it wasn't the guy. Really shoddy police work. <clears throat> so, um, uh, of note, there is a, a sheet of notebook paper which is entered into evidence where several punch marks are said to be punched by McWatters. It's a piece of notebook paper. has like five or six punch marks on it. You see it on the, on the PowerPoint presentation. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, this is a, uh, basically to show um, uh, McWatters' punch mark in comparison with the transfer. <clears throat> Silly, a pointless exercise. Now, you know, to find McWatters through a transfer that they find, supposedly on Oswald, they would need, you know, and to drag McWatters off his bus as it pulled up in front of the police headquarters. The DPD would have had to have gone to Dallas Transit, seen the supervisor, shown him the punch mark on the transfer, matched that to the master list with all the driver's punch marks on it, which they never take a picture of, never enter evidence, never showed a, never showed it us or to McWatters. So the the booklet the, uh, and uh, Basically, everything, you know, uh, it's not processed. Nothing's processed. So uh, basically, you have a picture uh, from the FBI lab. Fuck. That's the only thing that they do with the processing. They take a picture Sorry. of the transfer. And that's it. Uh, so on there, there could be prints from McWalkers. And so they don't show it to, to Cecil either. So <clears throat> basically, nobody knows what this, uh, what this master punch list looks like, who actually is matched up from uh, number 195, badge number, to that punch mark. Uh, basically, we have to take Cecil's word on it, and that's all we have. <clears throat> Very simple for them to take a, a copy, photo, something of that, so we have some evidence. But instead, yeah, you know, we have the typical DPD way. And this is the same DPD that uh, is having uh, uh, Whaley, the cab driver, uh, sign his affidavit before the lineup. So basically, <laughs> naming the guy and then taking him to the affidavit, <laughs> down to the lineup. Um, so... <laughs> that's kind of funny and, and it's basically comical um, <clears throat> so the, basically the whole uh, bus and cab ride is, is so comical uh, that the press uh, asked uh, District Attorney uh, Henry Wade if this is the first time Dallas Transit was have, has ever been used as a getaway car <laughs> so, Cabby Whaley is so accommodating he has he's asked which jacket Lee was wearing the uh, light light gray one or the dark blue one, <laughs> to which he responds both. Under <laughs> <laughs> uh, lie, as uh, the uh, dark jacket was later found, you know, at the Texas School Book Depository, <clears throat> by a person who supposedly wasn't there that day, as at the Baylor Dental Clinic, and uh, who happens to find both the clipboard and this blue jacket. Frankie Kaiser. <clears throat> Interesting. Absolutely. Absolutely, yeah. Mr. Kaiser, and, and his brother. <laughs> very, very interesting that Kaiser's absent that day. That's always that so interesting. 
how that worked out for him. <clears throat> and uh, so basically, uh, we have Whaley's cab uh, logbook, <clears throat> and they're showing us, and they're trying to fool us into thinking that uh, basically the, the that uh, Whaley would uh, put down 15 minute increments, round everything off to the 15 minute. Uh, and you can see in the PowerPoint presentation, uh, Whaley's cab logbook is marked in five minute increments, not 15. That is a lie. <clears throat> so that basically shows that he had already taken the trip to Oak Cliff by the time we had left the building. <laughs> if he'd left at 1233, he's late for the cab. He can't get, he can't get on the bus at 1240, <laughs> ride it for three blocks or two blocks or whatever. And get off and catch this cab. Cab's already gone before he left. It's just hilarious. I mean, you really have to put your brain into another pocket in your in your shirt to believe what they're trying to tell you. <clears throat> so, so uh, basically, <laughs> McWatter's testimony lacked nailing down uh, exactly which booklets he took. On the back of every booklet is a serial number. Yeah. Um, it's they're serialized, so you can tell. Um, we, we don't have that. They, they don't want to nail that down for us either. And then, and then, uh, where exactly in the booklet uh, that the suspect transfer was actually from? Uh, Cecil says you gave out two transfers, and you're eight transfers into a booklet. <laughs> something's something's wrong. Yeah. Um, so how is it that I have a booklet? Anyways, I mean that's that was the thing too. How is it that I have a booklet dated before 1963, 1959? Of course, uh, one full booklet starting with the same number as Oswald's supposed transfer. Booklet came from the same routes, uh, etc. It seems my booklet basically raises a lot of questions. And uh, this is but one aspect of so-called evidence uh, I have examined and found to be highly suspect. Uh, and basically framed an innocent man, you know, with this evidence. Um, at least, 19, you know, just like 19 others. <laughs> Nothing there, though. No smoke there. Uh, so basically, the forum at ROKC um, and it has many research threads. Uh, we basically archive them uh, from. I think I even put up a, my old old one on Oswald's Technicolor jacket. <laughs> that's a that's a funny one. And then there's uh, no shots fired from the Texas School Obviously, Repository. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, just just rips right into them. I find the main thing is what I find um, always hard to swallow is. Uh, in this whole case is the uh, common sense point of view is uh, like for instance the angle where the shots were fired why didn't he shoot him while he was before he did the turn right. on elm for instance but also like if you know an escaping he was, he assassin, was too busy an assassin <laughs> busy. takes a bus and then goes in the cab that, because he goes in the wrong direction then he gets off and he goes in the cab and he lets the lady take the cab first you know and all these stories and you just go but this just boggles the mind. This is the guy who just shot the president and then is on his way to shoot a police officer. But the way he does it is like, no, he doesn't get into the car like uh, Roger Craig says. No, he gets in a bus and he goes in a cab and then he goes and gets his gun. And then he 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 walks. What is it? Nine tenths of a mile in like in like supersonic yeah. speeds, practically to basically blast tip it away. And then. Calm as a cucumber, right. go sits down in in the Texas theater to go and watch a movie as such. Yeah, yeah, it makes right. a lot of sense. And <clears throat> so basically, that leads me into what I believe the the DPD was looking for. Uh, you know, basically a way out. 
and this was it. A way to get Lee Harvey Oswald to Oak Cliff in time to be the ticket shooter, as <clears throat> the JFK case was very weak, very weak. So along comes Porter Bledsoe uh, with the phone call, saying his mother was on a bus with a wild man, Oswald, uh, you know, of note, which, uh, you know, cannot logistically uh, be transfer man. So uh, his mother has this altercation with this boy, basically, or overhears it or whatever, uh, and which, you know, Porter spins into it being the famous killer Oswald on the bus with his mom and then tries to sell a page from a calendar, right, which Porter may have uh, faked himself or whatever, uh, basically, so he could sell it. And this this page from the calendar uh, supposedly showed that, that Oswald had resided at the Bledsoe's. Well, like I say, the FBI tracked down that, that calendar page and its owner, uh, you know, uh, Nybar, and uh, they didn't confiscate it, you know, but only copied it via, via photocopy um, or a photo, um, which, is, which is worthless as far as handwriting evidence. You cannot tell me from a photocopy if that's my signature, because it's all based on pressure and flow and all these kind of things. That's how you identify a signature. And if you watch anything like Pawn Stars or anything, you're not getting that from a copy. That ruins it. So that was another way out for them, for the DVD or the FBI or any of them. So basically, one would think the page that proved where Oswald was living would be very important in this case, especially when, when they were trying to find out where he had lived uh, for a couple of weeks when they couldn't find him. So you would think, in desperately searching to nail down where he lived and where he had stayed, that this would be a very important piece of evidence you know, in their arsenal to uh, convict. You know, yet it's not found in the commission document exhibits. Why? So, you know, when you read and you understand, uh, you know, why even this picture is not in there, you know, a picture of the calendar page that proved that Oswald was there yeah. to and from <laughs> kind of a weird way to keep track of records. <clears throat> what did they give? What did they give Oswald to? I mean, to and from, it seems kind of weird. Uh, <clears throat> so when you read and understand that uh, Mary Bledsoe's testimony, uh, along with uh, her lawyer, uh, Melody Dothit, <laughs> very interesting, uh, where she, Melody Dothit, the lawyer for uh, Miss Bledsoe, is doing much of the questioning of Miss Bledsoe. So, <clears throat> in fact, uh, Mary reads her answers, and, and that's a very interesting thing, that she had prepared questions from papers the Secret Service agent for Sorrells asked her to bring in. So basically she's got her crib notes. Uh, you know what the questions are. Here's what I got to answer. Here's the question. Here's the answer. <clears throat> so one should take great pause when Mary says things that uh, you know, you know, are unbelievable and that help disprove her own story. Uh, you know, so she wants to place Lee Harvey Oswald, whom she had just watched on TV, uh, in her house previously as a renter, and on the bus she took home earlier. Uh, so basically, Mary's whole story needs a chapter, and and. And none of it would be worth two nickels. So, um, <clears throat> but Cecil famously says, you know, basically the police identified the transfer as the one um, they got on Oswald when he's arrested. It's a very interesting way that Oswald um, says this, and he he says this every time, you know, in his testimony, and then uh, in his interview with Eddie Barker of CBS, and then uh, CBS basically aired that special report on September twenty seventh, nineteen sixty four. That's three days after the Warren Commission uh, issued its report. And uh, shouldn't Cecil have said, I 
identified the transfer as the one I issued that they found on Oswald? No, he does not, basically refuses to use that language. And so he sticks to his language that the DPD ID that transfer as the same one the DPD had on Oswald. So that makes no sense. <clears throat> now, why would the DPD need to ID a transfer? So basically Cecil is the one is laying the blame on the DPD for the ID of that transfer, not himself. The DPD is telling Cecil that is the transfer found on Oswald. Thusly, you issued it. Transmark on it, doesn't it? Stuff like that. You, you can imagine. Uh, <laughs> you can imagine the tactics or the uh, read techniques they would have used on <laughs> Cecil McWaters to get him to go along. A little arm twisting. Who knows? You know, whatever it took. We'll make you famous, Cecil. Uh, <laughs> but uh, you know, he, he tells him it's all bullshit. Yeah. Basically. Yeah. By his language. Yeah. So, and the thing. Go ahead. I was just thinking about McWaters. McWaters got this threatening letter as well, didn't he? Like that piece of newspaper cl uh, clipping. You're next, maybe. He, March twentieth, nineteen sixty-four. He was supposed to testify next, and, yeah. and that was, I, I think, what the, the letter from a, from a kid or some, you know, fan, some, you know, somebody in a classroom or something, you know, maybe a homework assignment. We used to get them as kids, you know, pick something out of the newspaper and write to this person, and. Uh, <clears throat> You know, it wasn't like he wrote to him at home. He just Dallas Transit Company is yeah. how it's addressed. Yeah. And basically with the article, and, hey, you're next. And he in the article it says he's next to testify. Yay. <laughs> you know, kind of that kind of thing. You can take it either way. You can say, oh, that's a threat. Maybe. Maybe they'll, not a very good one. No. It'll be very good. <clears throat> no, and the only funny thing about it is is the uh, in the same cutout of that is a bus driver crash and death. <laughs> <laughs> Not what they say, you're next. It's that the, the clipping of the newspaper includes that part of another article. Yeah. <laughs> Bus driver died. Fiery crash. Uh, <laughs> which reminds me of basically how Whaley died. Head-on crash. Dead instantly. Uh, basically, uh, the thing about the transfers, you know, like I say, is that why have one, you know, if you don't plan on using it? Uh, and if you used it, you wouldn't have it. <laughs> that's, that's the thing about transfers. If you got one and you used it, it's not in your pocket, right? It's it's on another bus because yeah. another bus driver would have accepted it, right? Yeah. Um, so that's why I ask everybody to please find me another punched transfer from 1963. I dare you. I dare you. Find me a punched transfer. From Dallas from 1963. I, I dare you. So, uh, you know, if, if someone had one that was punched, got off a bus, they're going to use it because they paid 23 cents for the privilege to use that transfer, right? Are you going to go and pay another 23 cents even though you got a transfer? You know, are you going to waste your money on a cab then? Even more money? Yeah. And you've got a transfer? Yeah. It just doesn't make any sense, uh, logically. So, if you had the booklet, it would be pre-punched by Cecil, as he says in his testimony. If you got a hold of his booklet, right? Mm -hmm. Every punch, every I mean, every every one of those transfers, all 50 of them, he would have pre-punched before he went on his route. So all you need to do is get a hold of his booklet, right? You don't need him. You don't need his punch. You just need his booklet. Yeah. Got it? 
Yeah. That's that's the key, right? Yeah. So <clears throat> basically, now and uh, uh, McWater's notary statement in his handwritten affidavit said he picked up a man on Elm, the lower end of town, around Houston Street. Now he scratches that out. <laughs> Or he scratches out, I picked up a woman. Okay. So he says he picked up the man, and then he says, I picked up a woman. But he scratches out, I picked up a woman. And, and then he writes, I went out Marsalis, and I picked up a woman. And he's clarifying there. He knows exactly where he picked up the woman. And it wasn't downtown. <clears throat> and it wasn't back on Lamar or Field. or It, it wasn't downtown. So... He knows where he picked up the woman. He's quite specific. And so any interactions between this man and that woman that he supposedly picked up would have to be out in Oak Cliff. Have to be. As soon as he leaves that stop near Houston, he drives out to Oak Cliff. There's nowhere else. So we know it was not a man downtown who gets a transfer, gets off the bus, did not use a transfer, but grabs a cab many blocks away. A cab that had already left before Lee could have ever got to that spot, barring time travel. Um, the statement says Lee, uh, says Cecil, let the man off on Marsalis. Uh, oh, with the lady and the man is only on Marsalis Street. Nowhere else. Not downtown. Not anywhere else. It's out of Marsalis. That's the only place it can be. That's where Cecil explains that this happened. All right. So Cecil agrees, though, that the transfer is from his bus with his punch mark. Yet the man's boarding is changed again, remember, from Houston Street in the affidavit back Griffin Street. All right. Sorry, can you repeat that last bit? From Houston? From the Texas School of Right, from Houston Street where he says in the affidavit that's where he picked him up near Houston Street to Griffin Street. Right. Now that's it's seven blocks from the Texas School Book Depository on Houston and Elm, where Cecil wrote in his affidavit, or his first day statement, around Houston, and not Midtown. So basically saying, you know, in town means, you know, Midtown would be where, you know, Elm, you know, Elm Street and Lamar, and this this point where they, they say they picked them up. But McWaters is quite, quite certain in the statement, <clears throat> at the end of town. And so... Um, Cecil, Cecil is a, oh, a 30 year professional driver at that time. So it's doubtful, uh, he would confuse Griffin intersection with Houston or Houston with a half street that doesn't go, doesn't even go across Elm. Um, he, you know, you would know that. Cecil said the police opened the right lane past market, you know, to allow the buses and such to go on. Uh, Cecil should be in the left lane to turn south. On Houston, opposite the Texas School Book Depository on Elm. And basically, the Beckley bus too would go through this intersection, but in the right lane, exactly where the bus, Beckley bus would need to be to make a stop at the northeast corner of Houston Elm in front of the Deltex building. And <clears throat> it'd be nice to know the Beckley bus driver's name, who he was, uh, what his story was, who he had on his bus. Uh, what he saw, did he accept any transfers? All this stuff we don't know. We only know about Cecil and his bus when right behind him is the Beckley bus. Hmm. Not a word. We don't know who drove it or anything. 
no attempt by the DPD to even get that information. Uh, so basically, so basically we've got this big hole in their case, and we don't have that information. I've looked for it. I, I've tried to find out who might have been driving that bus. It, it's just it's really unavailable. Seems somebody would would have came forward. I, I checked. There's a bus drivers forum uh, for old uh, Dallas drivers. Yeah. Nothing. I, I mean, it's just tough. Yeah, yeah. So it would be nice to know the Beckley bus driver's information, uh, get his story. Um, who was he? What he saw? Did he accept any transfers? Who was on his bus? All that kind of stuff. What did he see up happening on, you know, McWater's bus? It's right behind it. You should know. He should know uh, how long he stayed at the Majestic Theater, killing him in it. All that kind of stuff. That driver could tell us. That would fill in a huge um, mystery, you know, hole, dark hole there where we don't know anything. So a uh, timing. Timing is important. So it's 1245, 12.45 before any news report, uh, that's FAA, announcing a temple shot to JFK. And that's uh, because of the interview with Bill Newman that they do on air. Yeah. And, uh, and then 12.47, Chet Huntley also mentions a uh, temple shot. That's the earliest mention of those. Now, if they're stopped in traffic... A guy walks back to the bus from a car in front of Cecil's bus and steps on board and is telling Cecil about this. You know, it would have to be after 1244, after Oswald's already departed. He's gone. He's off the bus. So there's another another blow to their story is the radio report, you know, talking about the temple shot. So that, that just destroys them right there. From a timing because we know timing perspective at 1236 Cecil Cross St. Paul at 1240 he's at or past Field Street um, at 1244 uh, is when the man gets off so you know it it's 1245 uh, when Bill Newman begins talking about that and, and gives the you know the, the temple story shot and and uh, I think uh, Newman was sitting with his baby or whatever, and he pointed to actually to the the opposite temple, to his left temple. But uh, but then it's still then still you have to add on a few minutes for the story actually to be traveling right. and be so, told. So and that's and that's where at twelve forty seven. I mean, this is three minutes after the guys left the bus that you know Chet Huntley and all these reports would go out over the radio. Um, so it doesn't look good for the commission, does it? You know, um, again, not at all. Looks really bad for them. Uh, so uh, one scenario is if uh, Milton Jones, you know, maybe got a transfer from Cecil's bus, uh, you know, while stopped in traffic there. Um, uh, maybe he goes up ahead, um, you know, to Houston to go see what's going on. And, and so maybe while Milton is gone, a man in the car radio is listening to a news radio report. Here's the Temple Shot story at 1247, you know, walks back, uh, tells the folks on the bus. And uh, Cecil, Milton wouldn't know this because... Got transfer, he got off the bus, and then you know he comes back after that guy, you know, leaves his bus. Cecil knows the story. I'm just trying to explain it to you know everybody. It's a temple shot, and this is where Milton gets in this altercation later on, uh, out on Marsalis with the lady. That's the only way that would work. It can't work down on Field Street. It hasn't happened yet. I mean, it's just impossible. So basically, um, so so that's 
where Cecil pinned the transfer on the Milton, on this boy Milton, you know, because he's the only kid who, or this small guy who's riding out to Oak Cliff and, you know, knows about this temple shop. That's the only way, that's the only way it works. And uh, so then basically, you know, Cecil's asked to pick that man out of a lineup. Cecil says Oswald's the closest one, uh, really trying to pick out Milton Jones. And uh, it's odd that Milton is never questioned by the Warren Commission. <laughs> they don't want to go there, you know. Um, and basically the FBI didn't ask about his ride until March 30th. That's uh, four months later. They, they go and they uh, find uh, Milton and his Brownlee address and call him, you know, basically question him, you know, uh, take a FBI interview report of, of you know, his story. Uh, and his story is kind of, uh, by that time, by four months later, he's, you know, he's kind of lost the fine details maybe um, about the timing. Um, says that the police came on the bus, uh, basically searched everybody on the bus before it left downtown and this kind of stuff. Uh, I mean, when you look at the... Uh, um, the films that, you know, that are taken of that intersection, uh, showing the, the police, uh, you know, taking the cars through even right after the, that, uh, there's no stopping of, of buses and people. So, you know, uh, Milton would be a bad witness for them anyways, I think. Um, but he really destroys their, their whole notion that Oswald was on the bus. Um, because, uh, you know, both him and, and, uh, Cecil described the writer as, a basically just a working guy wearing a matching, um, um, uniform, basically top and bottom, kind of matching pants and, and jacket. Just a working guy, you know. Yeah. So they didn't even think much about him, you know, whereas Oswald would have been uh, obviously not wearing the blue jacket. It's <laughs> found by my other friend who wasn't at work that day, Kaiser, right? So uh, so it's very odd. And then, uh, of course, that sets up the whole thing with Bledsoe and x-ray vision if he was wearing a jacket how do you see tires in the elbow of the shirt <clears throat> yeah so basically there's uh these are the ways <laughs> oswald may have left the plaza i'll give you the, the top 10 list uh one is by bus uh two bus or bus and cab uh three different bus four bus and different cab five station wagon driven by a negro six station wagon station wagon belonging to ruth payne and possibly maybe Ruth dropping him off in the morning, too. <laughs> we don't know how he got there. Sure wasn't with Wes riding out to the other parking lot. Um, unknown automobile. Unknown driver. Number eight. An auto driven by Charles. Oh, for fuck's sake. Is it going again? Yeah, it's gone tits up. Thank you very much. The top ten list. Hold on. Sorry. Sorry. You need to clap. Uh, can you go back to number eight, please? Because we were frozen. Okay. Number eight. An auto driven by Charles Gibbons, William Lowry, or Joe Molina. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's definitely an option. <laughs> um, remember, too, that uh, <laughs> that Lee was dropped off at Ruth's, Ruth's place uh, when he came back one time by a Negro in a truck, supposed uh, to hitchhiking. Um, nine. His usual ride, Buell Resley Frazier. Uh, Ten, David Leon Miller or Marion Mehag in that other car that they were that they tried to get the license plate of. Uh, the Walker House photo station wagon with the plate scratched out. <laughs> so uh, that's actually number eleven. Um, so uh, of note, 
a call was taken by the Dallas sheriffs that day on on Friday uh, from a bishop bus rider. That's a big bishop bus line um, by a rider by the name of J.G. Odell. And Odell relates that a man who got on the bus at Poydras Street said that the president was shot and the governor has been killed. And then that man, whom he kind of thought was Oswald by um, seeing the uh, the television, I guess, coverage of Oswald in custody, uh, he said that, that that guy got off the bus before Bishop Street. Um, it sounds a lot like what became the Bledsoe story. Uh, o- Odell was never contacted again. Uh, so once they went with the Bledsoe st- you know, s- story, and, and she was a landlady, supposedly, so, so that... that that made it even uh, stronger for them, you know. That uh, isn't it. Uh, you know, is, what you're just mentioning here—that's quite interesting because <clears throat> that reminds me of uh, the similar scenario with uh, Victoria Adams and Sandra Stiles, for instance. Victoria Adams is hurt, and then there is a person who can corroborate her story, and then there's no uh, interview, there's no Warren Commission, there's there's nothing. And as Sandra Stiles also said afterwards. And they never want to know anything of that of the sort as such. They never try to touch anything uh, about uh, our descent on t- from the fourth to the ground floor, basically, as such. You know, uh, anything that could be helped to back up that something that would prove uh, contradictory mm. to the official uh, report was basically uh, ignored. You know, and there's that. Otis Williams. Sorry? Otis Williams on the step. Otis, Otis Williams going up the back steps, too. Yeah, exactly. But, yeah, all these things that basically can just... Uh, help corroborate a, uh, a different scenario are basically ignored right away. It's like, you know, yours right. is, a, is, a, is a brilliant example as well, again, of that. So basically that's what you got there. You've got, uh, <clears throat> rather than Odell, a stranger, they go with the, the landlord story. It makes it stronger. You know, even if it's completely false, never happened, they stick with it. So, and, uh, <clears throat> and he had contacted the sheriff's office and, and there's the thing too, you know, um, Porter called uh, the DPD and, uh, and then took her down there to the DPD. Um, it, it seems like that's where most of this comes from. I mean, Roger Craig was a, a he's a deputy sheriff. Yeah. He wasn't with the Dallas police. Yeah. But they didn't, they didn't go with his story either, did they? Well, no, no. <laughs> I nope. mean, that, that in itself is quite interesting because yeah. uh, in Barry Ernest's book, uh, The Girl on the Stairs, um, in the late 60s, uh, Ernest himself went to Dallas and he interviewed Craig. He also interviewed Decker, although be it very shortly. Oh, man. And Decker said, like, Roger Craig is a liar. And uh, uh, Craig basically yeah. said the story of Craig was that Craig saw Oswald leave. Well, he saw a guy who looked like Oswald. And he said, like, he got in a Rambler car and he couldn't reach it, although he said it was maybe about roughly eight feet away in the car when he saw Oswald. So he was pretty close. So he could see whether it was Oswald or not. And um, he tried to catch up with them, but there were cars and the traffic was moving. So he couldn't really get, get to yeah. it, get to it as such. Then while Oswald's being interrogated, uh, Craig walks into Fritz's office and says like, uh, and, and Fritz says like, this is the guy who saw you leave, blah, blah, blah. And he says, yeah, I told you guys, you know that, blah, blah, blah. And then, of course, the Nash Rambler gets being brought in and he says, don't bring, that car belongs to Ruth Payne. Don't, don't drag her into this. 
then when Fritz is basically supposed to recall about all this, he really vaguely says like, oh, you know what, uh, yeah, I think he came in and, you know, it doesn't really play out as such. And then, of course, when Decker says he's a liar, blah, 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 um, then uh, after that, Jesse Curry's book comes out and there is a picture of Craig standing yeah. inside room 313, which was robbery and homicide. And there's there's Craig standing inside of basically showing the proof that he actually walked into that office and actually was present while Oswald was being interrogated as such. Yeah. Yeah. That's what we hope. Yeah. Um, supposedly, supposedly the pictures are from Saturday, though. Is is what you know? They're, the beers photos, supposedly those. Yeah, from I mean Saturday. they could be, but they're, they're they're be, they could be from. Uh, I don't know if they are or not. I right. don't. I don't see. For me, it's like I don't see a reason why Craig would lie about something like that. That's, I mean, I, I yeah. just don't. I um, And also, I must not forget that Oswald was not interrogated as much and as long on a Saturday as he was on a Friday. Because on a Friday, he was interrogated right. relentlessly from 2 o'clock till about midnight. Yeah, almost like right. by 10 hours. Yeah, 10 hours. In total, Oswald was only interrogated for about 13 so on a saturday he only did about two hours and on a sunday in the morning he was there for about 45 minutes to an hour before he got snuffed it's the the holmes yeah holmes interview yeah exactly so i i i think that craig was in that office on 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 the friday as such and i i tend to believe craig um you know there are things about it where you can go about like why well, you didn't mention that back then and you know you added yeah. that one afterwards but sure here's the thing bookout was there yeah bookout was there when he was there and bookout made the report about what craig said yeah and and now it's always i've always gone back and forth on this did did craig say a light light colored rambler or did he say a white colored Rambler. Book outputs, book outputs, um, white. But I think Craig was saying it was light yeah. because later on he said it was like a light green color. Yeah. It was a light color, yeah. you know. And whereas book out heard it as white, puts it in there. But then whenever, you know, it's it's like supposedly trying to make Craig his story changes. So when he goes before the, the testimony for the Warren Commission or whatever, <clears throat> it turns into a a, a green car. Yeah. But no, it's but he changes. It. It's no, it's a, a, a white one or whatever. Yeah, yeah. But the solo um, report so, by Lookout is iffy. Almost on almost every word, every letter of that solo report is iffy, because he actually contradicts himself for the joint report that he did with Hosty, you know, and uh, especially right. regarding Oswald. Because well, this is the second one, no, no, the Bookout one, where he, where he's talking about Craig. It's this is a completely separate. This is not this is not an Oswald. This is not any of those. It's not the combined or the or the or the separate one. This is a completely separate one oh. where he's just specifically giving the information from oh, Craig. You're right. You're uh, right. I think I think I might even have it on the PowerPoint. Might look Actually, you're, but, uh, yeah, yeah. you're absolutely right. But it shows also that Bookout was basically working that day in trying to reinvent the story and actually do a 180 on his joint report that he did with Hosty the day before. And the most telling. Um, telling a moment about that is actually when he says that Oswald after the second floor lunch so-called second floor lunchroom encounter goes downstairs has his lunch and then stands outside with Bill Shelley talking whereas Bill Shelley was standing outside well he was standing outside 
before, right. but not after, before. because he went to the railroad yards and then went back through the side entrance as such. So, um, <laughs> basically, book out at that point basically makes it sound that Oswald actually stayed for 10 to 15 minutes after the assassination in the building and just outside. As right. Such. That's, That's exactly what he's trying to do. Exactly. And that is basically it's like, it's either one way or another. Did he leave right away after or did he hang around as such? And this is like where he contradicts himself badly. And, and you can't have it both ways. No. I mean, if he left at 1233, gets on this bus, goes in that cab, gets to <clears throat> Oak Cliff, yeah. uh, gets his pistol supposedly. And that's what they're trying to do is um, transfer points. So when you look at the – also in the PowerPoint, I'll, uh, I show – the transfer points, and that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get him to Oak Cliff so he can supposedly go from the rooming house over to this transfer point over on Jefferson or whatever. Yeah. <clears throat> and that's supposedly that's where he's heading, you know, whenever he takes this gun out and shoots down Tippett. Um, and and that, all the whole thing is a whole it's it's all garbage. It, it doesn't wash. Yeah, especially it's hooey. Uh, as once again, I mean, start at the beginning. There is nothing that holds any water in this case. That if you look deep into it. Uh, they're either lying, yeah, or um, there are just so many contradictions where you just go, this doesn't add up. It does not add up at all. And this is where long right. nut uh, theorists always fail because they don't look at the complete picture as such. And the complete exactly. picture actually shows how actually wrong everything is. Now, you can put things down to uh, bad writing or bad uh, police, police work and so forth, but you cannot have that many inconsistencies and so many screw-ups um, you know, it's just, it just boggles the mind how many screw-ups actually are being made. If it's not in the paperwork or the testimony, uh, you know, it's just everywhere. And plus the lying, you know, a lot of people are basically yeah. caught out as such by being just complete liars. Oh, right. Absolutely. Either voluntarily um, or yeah. being put under pressure, uh, uh, of course. Um, let's just uh, try and round this up a bit. Uh, uh, just a couple more. I've got uh, one question like before you kick uh, go. Continue. Yeah. I've just got one question. What made you look into the bus as such? <laughs> well, the, the the bus seemed uh, quite humorous. Uh, I, I found much much humor in uh, like the Oswald the Technicolor um, jacket. You know the, the yeah. piece that I wrote about. The, it was just so humorous. Um, you know all the different stories that they tried to pinned down to one jacket, you know, and then this same thing. They're trying to pin all these various stories onto one writer on public transportation. Yeah. And uh, it it's just comical. I, I just find, uh, you know, you cannot write this. The Bledsoe stuff, you cannot write. No writer in the world, I don't care how dedicated you are to humor, or it, it just, it's impossible. You cannot write this stuff. The stuff that was said, <laughs> the questions that are asked, the, the replies. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. there's, there's no Seinfeld. There's no. There's no. God couldn't write this. There's nobody. Nobody's that funny. Yeah. No one is this funny. So that really, that really got me into it, you know. And uh, <laughs> and just, just you know, all the, all the, all the, uh, the rumors and stuff, you know, all the Chinese whispers. Yeah. All the, like uh, Edward Shields. Uh, Edward Shields. Um, yeah. You know, he worked at the old, the old uh, warehouse. Yeah. Uh, where West Park, car in front of down there on. Farther down Houston Street, there uh, he said basically the rumor was what he heard was, and the talk was I think quote the talk was that Lee Harvey Oswald left the Texas School Depository and a bus happened to be at the corner then so he hopped on it. Um, that was what uh, Edward Shields had said, right. um, 
And uh, that sounds like basically what, you know, that's, that sounds like a Beckley bus, you know, <clears throat> either it was, uh, you know, the one that was caught in traffic or the next one that come along, you know, whatever, uh, 12 minutes later, whatever. So <clears throat> that would be, that would be where you would get on the bus. If you're a bus driver, you would know that right. you would just wait there on the corner and take that bus. You wouldn't walk seven blocks up the street. Yeah. It just seems ridiculous on its face. And it is. <clears throat> so basically, also, uh, Cecil Joffrey McWaters said basically the man rode two blocks in, in his testimony thing and four minutes uh, from near Poydras Griffin. Uh, and then he said he was stuck for three or four minutes between Poydras and Lamar, where the man left the bus at or near Lamar. Um, but <laughs> the thing is, Poydras is between Griffin and Lamar. It's one block before Lamar is Poydras. So Poydras is where Cecil admits the man and the suitcase lady got off there, basically, or the train lady. Um, so if the man got on at Griffin and rode to Poydras, that is but one block. One block. <laughs> Elm, Elm Cross Streets were Everett, Stone, Ackard, Field, Murphy, Griffin, Poydras, Lamar, Austin Market Record. Houston. That's what they were back then. So basically, if the guy gets on... Past Murphy at about Griffin and rides to almost Lamar, which is Poydras. He's rode a block. <laughs> Four minutes for a block. I mean, it just seems silly. But uh, <laughs> I think they, they try and crawling. It seemed like he was on the. Yeah, they, well, they try and you know make it sound like he was on the bus for so long. Everybody got a good view of him. The guy got on, got off a stopped bus. Basically, what happened? <clears throat> a working guy in a blue jacket and blue pants. Uh, so, uh, Cecil McWaters says the man rode two blocks, four minutes from near Poydras and Griffin and said he was stuck in traffic for three, three or four minutes between Poydras and Lamar, where the man left the bus at or near Lamar. But Poydras is between Griffin and Lamar. Yeah. That's one block before Lamar is Poydras. So Poydras is where Cecil admits the man suitcase lady got off there or the train lady. Um, so if the man got off or got on at Griffin and rode to Poydras, one block, it's about one block. Elm Cross Streets were Everett, Stone, Eckerd, Field, Murphy, Griffin, Poydras, Lamar, Austin, Record, Houston. Four minutes, one block. Would you get on that bus? Nope. I wouldn't get off that bus. No. Which leads us to why he got off the bus, probably. Yeah. <laughs> to go catch a cab, right? Yeah. So, on April 8th, 1964, William Whaley, the cab driver in question, gives a deposition in Dallas to Mr. David Boleyn. Boleyn needed to uh, remind Whaley they had just met in Washington. Mr. Boleyn asks, You previously testified before the commission in Washington. Is that correct? Mr. Whaley says, yes, sir. Mr. Blinn asks, Mr. Ball and I saw you in Washington. Is that correct? Mr. Whaley answers, now, I don't know if that is correct or not, but your face is its very familiar. Mr. Blinn asks, you think you've seen, my, seen me before? Mr. Whaley, I don't know. Blinn, I might have been in Washington when you were there. <laughs> Mr. Whaley Yes, sir, it could have been. So who 
would defend Whaley's memory. I mean, Whaley doesn't remember a counselor who is questioning him, who is at his Warren Commission testimony, who's questioning him before he goes before the Warren Commission. I mean, here are we to believe uh, his memory of a face he saw on television and the newspapers is not a false memory or some confusion. Uh, Mr. Bling goes on to ask, all right, now, in here it says, number three man, quote, number three man who I know now know is Lee Harvey Oswald was a man I carried from the Greyhound bus station. Was this the number two or number three man? <laughs> Mr. Whaley answers, well, I signed that statement before they carried me down to see the lineup. I signed the statement, and then they carried me down to the lineup at 2.30 in the afternoon. Mr. Blaine asks, you signed this affidavit before you signed it? You saw the lineup? <clears throat> Mr. Whaley, well, now, let me get this straight. You're getting me confused. And Mr. Ball asks, do you know a taxi driver named Daryl Click? Mr. Whaley responds, I may know his face, sir, but not his name. Really? So a non-existent person, but Whaley may know his face. That's very interesting. And <clears throat> finally is back to Hugh Ainsworth, who gave us the cab story, remember? The break came when Ainsworth and Grove, his partner, decided Oswald had to have taken a taxi after he got off the bus at the corner of Lamar and Elm. Grove and Ainsworth started taking cabs, endless cabs. They'd pile in, give some destination, and then begin loudly discussing, uh, what's his old name? The guy who gave a ride to that little SOB who shot the president. If the cab driver didn't rise to the bait, they'd have him pull over, pay him, and hail another cab. Grove says they rode in enough cabs to drive to Mongolia. Eventually, one driver looked over his shoulder and said, oh, you mean Louie? Yeah, that's right, Louie. By the way, where's old Louie now? Oh, he's probably over at the Greyhound station in the line. So over to the Greyhound station, and after some smooth persuading of Louie, the escape route was nailed down. There it is. That's that's your story right there. Yeah. Yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> I mean, Whaley is about the most useless witness you can just ever imagine. It's just utter crap. Um, <laughs> you know, I mean, <clears throat> there are bullet holes into McWhorter's story as well. I mean, nothing... Not one person can just certify and say, yeah, Oswald was on that bus. I saw him there. He was wearing such and such. I know it for 100%, blah, blah, blah. It's just not there. Nowhere it can be found as such. You know, it's just innuendo after innuendo. It'd be a story Albert Doyle would be proud of, actually. <laughs> yeah, a defender of. <laughs> An indefensible defense of. Some complete garbage. That I think, I think you've done some excellent work with this. I mean, the, the thread itself um, at the RKC forum, um, it's always one of the most uh, important threads uh, with new finds and uh, putting a story together. Um, I think um, I think yeah. we all, in our own way, uh, have been trying to put stories together, be it Prayer Man, be it uh, Second Floor Lunchroom Encounter, be it the Bus Ride, be it uh, Buell Wesley Frazier and so forth. Um, Boy, yeah. You know, the, the stuff has been spread over the net all over the place, but it just takes uh, a lot of work to uh, put it all together and uh, try and get it into a, a cohesive story uh, that basically shows how much there is actually wrong, the contradictions. It is, uh, 
it is it is a bit of a like a, a, a Harold Weisberg method because uh, that's what Weisberg did. Weisberg went into all the documentations yeah. and started pointing out all the discrepancies as such. Uh, this is what I see with uh, the book, like uh, um, like I mentioned before, uh, the um, the girl on the stairs as well. It just points out all the anomalies and all the discrepancies, and just go like, hold on a minute. And then the the, the issue is, and I'm especially talking to um, people that are interested in the case, are actually is the fact that once the bigger picture starts to emerge, a whole different story presents itself and goes, hold on a minute. There cannot be that much wrong with your so-called official truth. story. Yet there is. The truth. And it just shows it. And, and it's and it's with everything, you know. It's Whether it's the bullets yeah. or the picket fence or the DPD or whatsoever. As soon as you start delving into this and go, but this doesn't add up. It just doesn't add up. And, you know. It only works. It only works if you stop at the surface. You don't ask any questions. Yeah. And you blindly accept what they tell you. Exactly. That's the only way it works. Yeah, you just take and that's it what they're possible. That's, that's they're hoping for. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what they've been right. they've been hoping for for 50 years, and I, I don't think they've ever got it. Yeah. <laughs> they've never really got it. You no. know. No, no, no. Yeah. Only people the only people who buy and spread their their story is um, the media. Yeah. And some some trolls on the internet, and yeah. that's about as far as it really goes. Yeah, yeah, that's true. Okay, on that note, thank you very much. And, um, yeah, I look forward to, um, to uh, hearing all this again. And uh, we're going to turn this into a presentation uh, with uh, accompanying uh, Ed's work, uh, which he's done in the PowerPoint presentation. And I shall add a few more pictures as well. And, um, uh, yeah, that's it. Thanks very much. Bye. Bye.
You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only. You do it right to save because you work too hard for your money not to. Lowe's is here to help with special Labor Day savings throughout the store. When you buy a DeWalt two-tool combo kit featuring a drill and impact driver, you get a DeWalt bear tool for free. Choose from a reciprocating or circular saw, angle grinder, or 20-volt battery. And update your appliances and get up to 40% off select appliance special values. This Labor Day, do it right for less. Start with Lowe's. Tool offer valid through 828. Appliance offer valid through 911 U.S. only.